You are listening to the Supermom is Getting Tired podcast. I'm your host, Tori Henderson, and this is episode 145. All links and show notes can be found by going to lifecoachingforparents.com slash 145. Welcome to the Supermom is Getting Tired podcast. This show is designed for moms who invest everything into parenting, but get overwhelmed, lost, and resentful. Listen and learn how to unburden yourself. Feel calm, full of energy, and in control. I'm your host, Master Certified Life Coach, Teacher, and Recovering Supermom, Tori Henderson. Hello, Supermoms. How are you? We are excited. Out here in the Bay Area in California, we are super excited because we got snow. It does not normally snow out here. So everybody's out taking pictures, it driving to try to get a glimpse of it when the clouds lift. It is super exciting. And we are nerding out over here with our global weirding. So very excited to introduce this podcast to you today. So this is an interview that I did. And it's what I wish I had known when my firstborn was little. Because today we're talking about all things sensitive and sensory. So if you are listening, you think, I don't know if I have a sensitive sensory child. That doesn't sound like my kid. Stay tuned just in case, because you might know, you might know somebody, you might recognize somebody, or you might be surprised because hypersensitive kids are pretty easy to spot. Usually we can tell they have lots of meltdowns. They get overstimulated. They don't like lights and noises and textures, and they complain about the tags in their sweaters and and textures of food, they're picky eaters, might be light sleepers. We might notice if we have an emotionally sensitive child who doesn't like to watch TV or doesn't like Halloween in the stores um, or scary things, they might be a little anxious or sensitive to like yelling coaches or get depleted in large groups. So these can be emotionally sensitive kids. But if your child is hyposensitive, you might not notice the signs. And so I want you to listen to these and just see if you know somebody else whose kid this sounds like and send them this podcast episode because I think it would be really valuable for them. So hyposensitivity is where it's like, I can't feel you unless I'm on top of you. <laughs> so these kids t- tend to be very touchy-feely, almost like um, you know, they're running into you, wrestling, always wanting to touch, huggle, cut you know, cuddle, uh, hug. They want, they complain very little. They don't throw tantrums like the hypersensitive kids, but they might always have things in their mouth. They might be running and tripping on things. They might be clumsy. They might wet their pants or not be tuned in with their inner signals. So they might not notice when they're hungry and just skip meals. And then when you put food in front of them, they devour it. Or they might not notice when they're full. And so they just eat and eat to the point where they almost like throw up because they're so overstuffed because that's the only way they can feel it. So these hyposensitive kids can have a high tolerance for pain, a high tolerance for noise, for excitement, for stimulating activities. They like to make messes. They like to get messy, uh, eat salty, crunchy food, climb up high places, you know, seek Uh, adrenaline-inducing activities. So if you know anybody like that, please send them this podcast and listen to Melissa Schwartz from Leading Edge Parenting talk about sensitive versus sensory kids and how to help. Enjoy. You are listening to the Supermom is Getting Tired podcast. I'm your host, Tori Henderson, and I have with me here today a special guest, Melissa Schwartz is an author, a speaker, and a coach specializing in highly sensitive children. So I'm so excited to have her to the podcast today to talk about sensitive and sensory children. So welcome to the show, Melissa. Hi, Tori. Yay. I'm so happy to be here with you. Yeah, I'm super excited. Like you have no idea. I wish I had (laughs) known you 20 years ago when I really was learning all about this stuff, my own personal reference. So why don't you tell me a little bit more about who you are, what you do? 
Yeah. So I, you kind of nailed it. I specialize in working with children that are highly sensitive and have sensory processing differences. Sometimes people ask me how I came to do this work. And I say I was born into it. I wish there was somebody like me when I was growing up who was out there kind of talking about this stuff, because there are a lot of children who are hardwired differently from many other children. In fact, it's about 15 to 20%. So it's about one in five are highly sensitive. And that means that these children, adults have a more sensitive nervous system. Um, And I'm sure we'll get more into what that all means. And then there's approximately, it's like five to 16% of children have sensory processing disorder, which is a neurological based disorder that makes the way a child, a child's brain processes sensory input disorganized. And so these kids tend to have behaviors that are difficult or challenging, or um, we might not understand why they're behaving in certain ways. But when we can look at high sensitivity or sensory processing disorder at the root of that behavior, then not only can we address the misbehavior, but we can get to the cause of it, which helps a child to learn how to thrive in a desensitized world. So I grew up highly sensitive. I have sensory processing disorder. It was never diagnosed, but the more I've learned about it, the more I'm like, oh, that was me. You know, when I learn about what sensory processing looks like in children, I ticked many of the boxes. None of it was identified. And so it is my passion to help parents and professionals who work with children understand what's going on inside of these children's bodies. Because oftentimes we think their misbehavior is something that they can control, but they really can't without having some help, without having an adult who understands what's at the root of that misbehavior so that then the child can really address it in a holistic, big picture way. And then thrive as, you know, as they really deserve to. So I have been coaching parents for about a decade. I've written a couple of books. I wrote one with my mom, who is also my business partner. She and I came to do this work partially because I was such a challenging child. That's a whole separate (laughs) story. Um, But she and I wrote a book called Authentic Parenting Power. And last year I put out a book for highly sensitive children called uh, Rico, Rico, the race car, which is based on a metaphor that I love to use to um, help adults understand what highly sensitive children's experience feel like. And there's another book in that series coming out that addresses sensory children. So this is what I do. I coach parents. I do public speaking. I love doing podcasts like this because parents deserve to have this information. So any way I can get it out there to them is a goal of mine. And so I'm, I'm thrilled to be here with you. Happy to answer any questions I can. That you- I have a ton of questions. <laughs> so my first question is, So sensory processing disorder is a diagnosis that is given by who? It's given by an occupational therapist who does a sensory evaluation. And there is a really clinical process that is done where um, it's sort of a combination of feedback from the parent about what they are observing that they think might be indicative of sensory processing disorder. And then in conjunction with the occupational therapist moving through sort of a checklist of behaviors and markers for how well a child can do certain tasks, stay emotionally regulated, keep their body under control. There there are all sorts of different indicators that an occupational therapist is looking for. And then based on that sensory evaluation, they would likely offer a diagnosis of sensory processing disorder. And I want to be really, really clear here that if you're listening and you go Googling around, you will probably see that sensory processing disorder shows up in the DSM-5, which is that diagnostic manual of disorders that everything is in. Um, You'll find SPD listed under autism. It's not given its own diagnosis. It's sort of under the umbrella of autism. And then sensory processing disorder is sort of a secondary umbrella with six different subtypes. Um, There's really one or two subtypes of SPD that I see show up a lot with high sensitivity. So we're talking about a very specific subtype 
of what is said to be a subtype of autism. But in my experience, people that have SPD are not necessarily autistic or even, you know, deep down that spectrum, right? Autism is a a spectrum. So we're all somewhere on it, but it is my personal belief that SPD should be its own diagnosis. So I just want to offer that as a caveat for anybody who goes and does um, some Google research. It's getting worried or things. Yeah. Yeah. And the other thing I want to say about it is even though we call it a disorder, I think that's another misnomer. I actually don't believe it to be a disorder so much as I like to say that the brain is disordering the way the senses are being processed. So I I always like to soften it for parents, especially if they come to me and, and they're anxious and worried and nervous and concerned that their child's been given this diagnosis and they got on Google and now they're freaking out about what it means and any ramifications. So just to be really clear that it's about the way that the brain is disordering sensory processing information. It doesn't mean that there is a disorder present. There's no medication involved. The, you know, I'm using air quotes, the treatment, the protocol is occupational therapy. It's about using play-based strategies and specific physical behaviors with children to help to rewire their brain to shift the way that that brain is processing sensory input. Right. And so I think a lot of autistic kids also have sensory processing disorders and that's why it ended up over there. But I think, you know, from my personal experience, like I was raised a kid with sensory processing challenges that were pretty obvious from the very beginning, but it was never, there was never anything else. There was no behavior challenges. There was no intellectual challenges. And so it prevented me from getting help for him. I didn't go to OT because it was no pediatrician was going to, no insurance company was going to pay for it. Nobody else was saying, yeah, here's a problem. It was just me getting to know my kid. And we were able to kind of adapt our lifestyle to accommodate him, which we're going to talk about some of the cons of doing that. Um, Some of the ways in which being the firstborn, it was a lot easier for us to do that. But, you know, in hindsight, I wish I had gotten, I got him some OT. Just, I thought I kind of watched YouTube videos and tried to do it myself at home, you know, but I just, it would have been really helpful to understand it. And I did notice that when you introduced yourself, you didn't, say sensory processing disorder. You said sensory processing challenges. Yes. I think that is a better way to look at it because it's more all encompassing and because it can can be challenging to the kid, but it can also be very challenging to the parents. Yes. And so, so we want to talk about the differences between sensitive and sensory, but first I want to ask you what, what are some of the most common ways that kids manifest and that show up that they've got some sensory issues? Like how would a parent know? Yeah. So I always have a little bit of a challenge answering that question because it never looks the same in any two people. And it's rare that sensory shows up as an isolated experience. In other words, I really specialize in working with kids that are both highly sensitive and have sensory or that are, you know, just, again, I'm using air quotes, just highly sensitive. But even a child who who I would say is more pure sensory, there are other factors to consider. How many children are in the family? How many moves has the family had? Are mom and dad together divorced? In other words, there are so many pieces that can play into what we would identify as sensory behavior. So with that, kind of caveat, I will say one more little piece here, which is that sensory is, again, it's a big umbrella. And so there are sort of three main subtypes that I'll just offer really, really quickly, and then I'll get into some more specifics. So the primary umbrella of sensory that I see, and that I think is what we're really going to be talking about today, is what we're going to call sensory modulation. That has to do with how much sensory input a child is, or an adult, is experiencing. And if it's what we would call um, sort of appropriate. There's no judgment when I say that. Are they experiencing too much or too little of a particular sensory input? Okay, so that's modulation. That's what we're going to focus on. But 
Um, when we're talking sensory, there's also what we're going to call sensory discrimination disorder, which is where a child really struggles to even perceive what a sense is offering them. That's sort of separate from high sensitivity for the most I just part. I want to interrupt you for a minute because I just want to like kind of ground this in like a practical experience that a mom might see. So just kind of a reminder is what we're talking about is the five senses, auditory sensitivity. I remember being at a park, we were at, at our, a park and there was a train and the train had a whistle. And every time the whistle blew, my two-year-old lost his mind and no other kid was reacting. And he was just like, so I don't like, what the heck that was, you know, that surprised me. Right. So where you've got this kind of heightened sensitivity to sounds, um, you know, we used to take when my son was a baby, we took him to watch his uncle's basketball games and the buzzer. Oh, good Lord. You know, so applause, all those things, auditory sensitivity. We're talking about uh, physical sensor, the tags and the clothes and the certain, I refuse to wear jeans. I only wear sweats and, and that kind of, um, you know, physical touch. Then we're talking about uh, taste, the texture of food, not tastes really. We're talking about the texture of food and that the, you know, kind of getting used to a new texture can be really off-putting for a lot of kids. Um, what am I missing? Smell. Smell. Oh yeah. Yeah. And sight. Some kids really struggle with bright lights. They, they want to wear sunglasses all the time. So all of what you're describing is what falls under modulation. And that's what we're really going to focus on today. The reason why I wanted to just briefly address the, the discrimination and um, the last piece, which is sensory-based motor disorder, is because those are part of sensory, but they show up in a totally different way. Those have more to do with a child's muscles, they might be really tired or really, they might look what we would call like floppy in their body. And that is very rarely overlapping with high sensitivity. So I just wanted to offer that again for anybody listening who's saying, well, she's talking about sensory over here, but this is also sensory. So again, sensory is broad and complex. And the place where most people who are highly sensitive will have this dovetailing is what you were just talking about, Tori, about what we're going to call sensory over-responsivity, where the brain is taking a whistle on a train in a park and processing it in a way that is much bigger than other brains will process it. And so what it does is it creates an overreactivity in that child's behavior. Now, there's one more thing I want to add here. We actually have three more senses that you didn't talk about just now that I'd love to share really quickly because they play a big part in what goes on for children that have sensory stuff. And most people don't know about these three senses. In fact, I didn't know about them. And when I, I was working with a family about eight or nine years ago, and their five-year-old was having trouble potty training. He was highly sensitive. And I was a nanny in my 20s. I potty trained lots of kids. I'm good. And so <laughs> nothing I was giving this family worked. And I thought, what is wrong? Of course, I'm using air quotes with this child that nothing that I'm suggesting is working. My ego is involved and I couldn't understand it. And at the time I was talking with a friend who was a pediatric occupational therapist and she said to me, Melissa, it sounds like he can't feel his body rhythms. And I was like, what are you talking about? And she told me about interoception, which is a sense that we all have that helps us feel our insides of our bodies, temperature, hunger, thirst, the bladder and bowel needs, um, tiredness. Those inner body senses are different than our tactile sense, which has to do with with touch, with like external outer world. Yeah. Outer world. Yeah. Interoception is our inner world's experience. And so some kids that are under responsive when it comes to certain sensory uh, inputs might not feel that they have to use the bathroom. They might not know that they're hungry or thirsty. And when I was working with this mom, I said to her, so tell me, does your son ever ask for a snack or a drink? And she said, you know, now that you say it, he doesn't, but I'll always tell him it's time to have some water and he'll drink a whole bottle of water. Or I'll say it's time for dinner and, and, and he'll come down and eat and he'll scarf down a plate of food. 
because his body couldn't talk to him. He couldn't hear the more subtle sounds. Now I want to say on the converse of that is somebody who has to go to the bathroom 30 times a day, who is constantly thirsty, who's always hungry, who's always aware that they're a little bit hot, a little bit cold. They're over-responsive to their interoceptive sense. Okay. But I want to interrupt here because I've just got all my mommies on my brain. So the way in which so you're talking about, I mean, in, in, a, in a way, okay, we're gonna, an easy kid and a hard kid. So the easy kid is one who's like, I don't need anything. I don't notice anything hard to potty train, but like, isn't demanding when you've got an overly responsive kid they're going to be like, ah, my stomach hurts. I'm hurting. Like I have to go pee again. You know, like I'm, I need to eat now where they, they're kind of hyper aware and probably verbalizing all of their inner sensations. So yes. that's kind of how I would show up for a mommy's yes. And they may or may not be verbalizing it. They may just be whiny and complainy and grouchy and grumpy. And not tell you why. And not and not even be able to identify why. Right. Yeah. They might not even be able to recognize that they're feeling hungry, even though they just finished lunch 20 minutes ago. Because the slightest bit of hunger registers on their body as feed me now. I'm starving. I need to eat. If I don't eat, I'm going to die. And what's really important here is to recognize that they're not doing this to make you crazy. They're not doing it to make themselves crazy. Their brain is misfiring a sensory input and their brain is misinterpreting what's going on. And what that child really needs is help from adults who understand to rewire their brain so that it's firing more appropriately rather than over responding to every little input that comes into it. Does that make sense so far? Totally. Yeah. Okay. Two more hidden senses I want to share with you, and then I'm happy to move on to whatever feels like the next question based on that. So um, we talked about interoception, then we have proprioception. Proprioception has to do with how we move through space and how much force we use in the world. So um, it's funny, my husband and I both have our own vehicles. And every time I get out of his truck and I close the door, he says to me, Melissa, why are you slamming the door? And every time he gets out of my SUV and he closes the door, it doesn't close all the way. And part of it is because the doors on our respective vehicles are different weights. And so we've both gotten used to how much force to use to close it. But I'm sharing that as an example, because you may have a child who is constantly pushing other kids, leaning on other children, slamming doors, not closing doors hard enough, pushing other kids down. They go to swing a bat and it it's nowhere near the, the T or whatever. This has to do with our proprioceptive sense in all of our joints around our body. So every fold of our fingers, our knees, our elbows are what we call proprioceptive receptors. And these receptors help us know where we are in space and they help us know how much force to use to make something happen. So if you have a child who you're always saying, be gentle with the cat or you're hurting the dog, it's probably an indicator that they've got some proprioceptive imbalance. Okay. Especially when we're telling them a hundred times, you know, most kids need to learn what gentle means through it being modeled for them. But if they're four, five, six, and they're still being too fast, too hard, or the total converse, way too slow, way too gentle, there's likely an imbalance in their proprioceptive. I remember in kindergarten, my son's good buddy, they, they spent a lot of time together. So they were great little teachers for each other because I would call my son, I called him hypersensitive where, you know, his, your arm hairs are touching his arm hairs. And he's like, ah, you know, like too much, too close too, you know, like I, you know, needed his, he was just very sensitive to like touch and texture. Right. And then his best buddy was hyposensitive where he's like, I can't feel you unless I'm completely draped on top of you. And to watch them line up at kindergarten, you know, my son would be super straight and rigid and very, you know, proper and obeying the rules. And then his friend would just be like pushing into him, you know, hanging on him. Like, I can't feel you unless I'm smushed into you. And so 
you know, he, he was always wanting to wrestle. And my son's like, oh, your body's sweaty. Don't touch me, you know? And so to watch them, it was great because they had to learn how to advocate for themselves. They'd have to say like, hey, back off, that's too much. Or, you know, come here and, you know, play with me and on the floor. And and they had to uh, kind of learn how to communicate each other's styles. So it was really fun to see the the, uh, contrast. And it's such a perfect, such a perfect demonstration. And a lot of parents that I work with that are highly sensitive, that have kids that like a lot of proprioceptive input say to me, my kid won't leave me alone. Like I just need to sit on the sofa near them and they are on top of me like a blanket or they're constantly touching me constantly and I need some space. And so what can often happen is we can, you know, not have a good fit with certain people when we are really over-responsive and they are really under-responsive. It can be very challenging to be together with, with somebody who's got a, an opposite kind of hard wiring going on here. Which is a great segue to today's question. <laughs> so I want to read this question to you from this mama mm-hmm. and, um, see if you have any words of wisdom for her. So she writes, she says, how can I increase my tolerance of my kids and remain calm more of the time? I have three high energy, loud, boisterous boys. I have daily routines, a few clear rules, lots of sports and outdoor time for all of them, but their day-to-day antics drive me crazy. I can stay calm about 25% of the time, but after that, I lose my cool and I shout, I'm talking minor things like making constant noises with their mouth, talking loudly, constantly banging on things. I noticed all three of those things were auditory, burping, bickering, well, all five of them. And so I thought this would be a good question for, you know, maybe some auditory sensitivity in the mom, like you can have it in the kids, but let's talk a little bit about when mom is wishing for peace and quiet. And she says, uh, I feel guilty. I'm not role modeling emotional regulation because I lose my cool so often. Yeah. Did did mom say how old her boys are by any chance? Three, nine and 12. Okay. It's a big age spread. All across the board. Yeah. So first of all, three boys is challenging. It's going to be noisy and burpy, unfortunately. Burpy and bangy. (laughs) Yeah. So um, my first tip is to have some earplugs. I keep earplugs in every room in my house because I am incredibly auditorily sensitive and it will drive me from super calm and regulated to very dysregulated very quickly. Out of all of my senses, an auditory dysregulation is the most quickly disruptive for me. So I ordered, um, I think these, the ones that I like are loop brand. You can get them on Amazon for like, I don't know, $15. They're comfy. Um, cause some earplugs, when you put them in, they feel really uncomfortable and these block out a lot of sound, but I'm still able to hear things that are going on that are important. And so the first thing I would do is model for the boys, how to take care of yourself in the midst of an uncomfortable sensory experience. Sometimes the best we can do is put in an earplug. If you struggle with smells, like when I travel on an airplane, I always bring a little essential oil with me because if something smells gross on a plane, like people's food or whatever. Can we just interrupt for a second? (laughs) Mamas, I have been on a lot of flights recently and it's the college age boys. Yes. do not realize they need to shower before riding on an airplane. So can you please just tell them this is a public service announcement when your kids go off to college or are traveling, you, they need to shower and put on deodorant that day because it's like, Oh my God. Okay. So especially for somebody who's really sensitive to it. Right. Um, so short of stopping somebody and saying, excuse me, I don't think you should get on the plane. Like this is a flight risk. I need um, to change my seat. I need, right. I need to change my flight. Um, I also, I like to bring oranges on a plane because I can peel it and it smells really fresh. And it's, really I fresh. do that in my car after volleyball games or track meets. Yeah. When the, you're driving the kids home, I would bring oranges and they would peel the oranges in the car on the way home. And it was, yeah. Boring. And it smells really fresh and clean and it kind of cleanses the air or I keep um, small jars of essential oils with me that I can kind of open and smell. And, um, and I pick 
fragrances that are uplifting or calming, kind of depending on what I know I'm going to be experiencing. So, so, and uh, one more thing is, um, you know, sometimes kids are, if you have young children, especially they're up early, they come into bed, they want to put the TV on in your room. Um, I have an eye mask in my room that I put on, you know, in the early mornings, if I still need some sleep. And so the first thing that we want to do is model for children, how to take care of our sensory experience, because part of being a highly sensitive person or a person with sensory differences is also recognizing that the world, unfortunately, doesn't care about your individual experience. The world is not stopping for you. Even as we're talking now, I hear the garbage trucks outside my house. It's trash day where I live. They're not stopping because we're recording a podcast. So what do I do? I shut my window. I turn your sound up a little bit louder. I might put on a white noise machine in the background. We've got to learn how to take care of our senses so that we don't become overrun by them. That's number one. Number two is if you have three boys in the house, you've got to have a sanctuary somewhere that you can go for when you need to retreat. You know, very often parents will tell their kids to go take a time out if their child is overwhelmed or overreacting and will encourage that child to go someplace else and calm themselves down. We don't necessarily teach them how to do it, but we want them to be able to do it. Well, why don't we show them how to do it by modeling it for them? Find a place in your home, likely your bedroom. If you work from home, maybe it's your home office. Um, depending on the size of your home, maybe there's like a, a den or a family room, or you can actually turn a, a little room or a closet into a Zen den with really mellow lights and, and um, uh, a, a essential oil diffuser and some mellow music and, and make it a sensory space that feels really good to be in. And say to your children, here's, here's the language that I would use. I would say to them, I am feeling really overwhelmed. The noise is making me feel like my nervous system can't handle it anymore. So I'm going to go into my bedroom for 10 minutes. I need to have quiet in there. So please don't disturb me while I'm in there. I have to reset my nervous system. I'm going to go do some deep breathing. I'm going to splash water on my face. I'm going to drink some cold water. I'm going to watch funny cat videos. I'm going to look at the clouds through the window. I'm going to call a friend. You do whatever you need to do that feels good to you to calm your nervous system. Because what, what I'm hearing this mom say is, what do I do when my nervous system is so dysregulated that I can't regulate it, but I'm not taking a break to go regulate my nervous system? Right. And the answer to that is good luck. Because you've got to step away from the sensory experience to be able to calm your nervous system. And the number one way to do that is through deep breathing. Breath is what allows our nervous system to calm itself down. You know, if, if you're running away from a lion in the woods, you're breathing really quickly and rapidly and shallow. And once you get away from that scary threat and you sit under a tree and you calm down, now you're taking slow, long breaths. Our bodies were built for this. We are meant to be dysregulated and come back into regulation. And so the first thing you want to do is verbalize to your children. I'm feeling overwhelmed. My nervous system feels rattled. I'm about to be a yelling mommy and I don't want to yell. That's the language I would use. Pick any one of those combination if you want, and then go into another room and take some deep breaths. And use cold water. That's another tool that can, can help our, our nervous system to reset. Drink it, splash it, run it over your wrists, whatever feels right to you in that moment. And allow yourself a few minutes to calm your nervous system and then go back out and try again with them. Because if you try to do it while the dysregulating input is present, you are in big trouble. It's not going to happen. You've got to get away from that disruptive input to be able to I think the trap that we fall into is we're like, you need to stop the behavior so that I can feel better. And so we focus on three rowdy boys who are very hard to control and they don't understand why they need to control. There's no motivation for them to do it, that they're not bothered by their noises. And so you've got to say like, this is what I need. I need to take care of myself. And that's really good role modeling for kids. I mean, 
one of the mantras I repeated constantly when my kids were like bickering with each other was ask for what you want. Mm-hmm. You know, we, you did this and you took that from me and it's not fair. And like, what do you want? Ask your brother what it is you want. And I would repeat that so often, but we can role model that and say, I want some quiet. <laughs> I'm going to go make that habit, you know, and it's just so much easier when you can take care of yourself than trying to control the world. So it, it to calm down the nervous system. It is. Yes. Uh, and challenge. I think the really big lesson in that is that we have to be our own advocates, you know, like a three-year-old bless their heart. They're still a little narcissist. They don't care that what they're doing is stressing out mommy. Yeah. Well, the nine and 12 year old are probably narcissists too. <laughs> they, they're not designed for that yet. Nine and 12 year old, different story. But what we want to do is show the little one that we get to take care of ourselves in a, in a healthy way, in a kind way, in a compassionate way, you know, it's modeling it for the older ones also. But ultimately, if you are a highly sensitive person, you have to learn how to be your own advocate. The world is not going to change to suit you. Just like that three-year-old is not going to change to please you. And so it's really about asking it's what you said, Tori, it's asking for what you need and then taking the steps to make it happen. And I hear a lot of parents telling me that they're too overwhelmed. Their home isn't big enough. You know, especially the last couple of years, a lot of us are home. (laughs) We're with each other more. Find a closet if that's what you can do. You know, it doesn't have to, you don't have to have a meditation room in your house. I am a big advocate of the car sanctuary. Yes. You know, music calms the savage beast. (laughs) So putting on music for yourself that calms you down may even also calm your kids down. Yes. Water, I think, is a common relaxer of any kind. Like you're saying, you know, cold water. For me, a hot tub was the best investment I ever made in my mental health. And because then you're, you're still at home, but you have a, a place to go where you sink into the hot water and you immediately relax, Yes, you know, taking a bath, but just water, whether you're drinking at it, drinking it, looking at it, soaking in it, you know, take the car, park someplace where you've got water. Remember water is powerful. The other thing is you can do with your kids as well as yourself is like, if you've got a sensitive kid who comes home at middle school is where this usually comes to a head because the energy on a middle school campus is quite dis- dysregulated. <laughs> and so when you've got a sensitive middle schooler who soaks up all that energy, like a sponge, just hanging out with people who are not quite grounded is then you can come home and you just tell them, you say like, you go take a shower and rinse off the yuck. And you kind of plant this seed in their head that you're going to go rinse off other people's energy, go ring out, go in water somehow. And exercise helps with this too. Go ride your bike around the neighborhood. And when you come back, you know, you'll have purged everybody else's energy and you can kind of plant that seed with your kids as well as yourself. You can say, oh, my, I'm feeling overwhelmed. I need to go soak in a tub. And by the time that all that water drains out of the tub, all of my overwhelm was going to go with it. And you can use your imagination, your, you know, kind of set intentions with these things to help you and help your kids learn how to, you know, purge this because it all comes back to energy. It does. And, and I know some people listening might say, really, that's what you're telling me to do to, to, to be able to handle my kids. <laughs> yeah. Because for sensitive people, we have to have daily ritual that lets us move our energy. And I want to add one more piece here because we're really talking about what to do in the moment of reactivity, but for sensitive people in particular, there's a lot of power in being proactive and taking a few minutes in the morning to get grounded and quiet and meditate. If your boys are coming home from school at three o'clock at two 30, say to yourself, I have to be done. If the laundry is not done, if dinner isn't prepared, if you know, whatever things have to happen, aren't done. I am going to take a break so that I can be in a place to handle the dysregulation that I know is coming and, and take care of yourself, get yourself grounded and centered, do a short meditation, do some breathing, 
do some yoga and stretching if that's what, what, you know, the other challenge here is what feels good to one body isn't going to feel great to another one. So you've got to really find for yourself what feels good. Sometimes journaling is what it's helpful. Sometimes praying is what's helpful. You know, everybody's got to find their own way to come back to themselves. But if you don't do that, you're going to be much more likely to be dysregulated by the children, much more likely. And so we can offer things to do in the moment of dysregulation, but that proactive piece is really important because it gives you more bandwidth to be able to handle whatever it is that's going on that would normally be dysregulating. And that's why you were talking about if a kid, if his parents are divorced or they're, they've moved a lot that those rituals and routines can get disrupted. And so if you've got a sensitive or sensory kid and then they're splitting the week, half at mom's, half at dad's or whatever, that that can be a part or you can exacerbate a problem. Yes, totally. My son figured that out. I wish I had known the value of kind of ritual and routine. You know, I'm very sensitive, but that's not one way that helps me. Like I don't need that. But my son, when he went off to college, he figured it out that he needed that. And he started drinking tea every day. Like he had tea time where it was like this ritual of boiling the water and letting it steep. And he would time the steeping on his watch, you know, he's such a dork, <laughs> but it was like he, that, that was something he figured out on his own. Cause he, you know, with college year schedule can be all over the map. There's not like, this is school time and this you know, he had a routine in high school because it was school and then volleyball and then homework and then bed and, and you go to college and Tuesday, Thursday's a different schedule than Monday, Wednesday, Friday. And it was too chaotic for him. And so he kind of figured it out on his own, but I wish I had known that he was benefited from that. I could have. Yeah. And I think college is really the time where we figure out what we need, you know, how much routine we need, how much balance we need, how much downtime we need, you know, especially living in a dorm that can be totally overstimulating and having a roommate. And there are a lot of moving pieces in life. And so the more we can isolate for ourselves and be a self-advocate, you know, to really take control over different pieces where we can feel like we are doing what works for us, the more we can handle the other pieces that we don't really have a lot of control and influence over. We have more resilience when it comes to dealing with those outside moving parts. Yeah. So, so much of this comes down to self-awareness first, I think, (laughs) and then really tuning in attunement with your kid. What works with this particular kid? What do they need? And just really trying to, but you can't tune into your kid unless you're tuned into yourself or until you're calmed down, right? So that's why like figuring out what do I need? Where are my sensitivities? I'm a big proponent of noise canceling headsets. Yes. That is, that's just when you, if silence for you is super calming, then getting a noise canceling headset is life-changing. So love that. Uh, So knowing yourself, knowing it works, getting you calmed down first so that then you can tune in to your kids and kind of observe them from this, uh, you know, not a, a, the reactive state that kids can often put us in, but more of an outsider's perspective where like, what do I notice about them? What do they need? What do they like? You know, sometimes you just get very verbal, noisy children and that's just who they are and how they're wired. And so there's, you can do certain things. You can certainly train them. One of the ways that we teach kids to quiet down is we play games with like, okay, let's be loud. And now let's be quiet. And you kind of teach them the contrast in a fun way and you know, I remember we used to do like house of manners and house of mess of like, okay, we're all very proper manners. And now let's be as sloppy as we can be. And when you can show kids the contrast, then they experience it firsthand. Yeah. And but you can't do those things unless you're calmed down. Absolutely. And those are even sort of like OT strategies to help children experience the differences. Like let's run really fast. Let's move really slowly. Let's push really hard. Let's be really gentle. And I do want to say that, um, you know, we'd sort of started out by you asking me some of the indicators of 
sensory stuff. If you have a child who is really loud all the time, like more loud than you think is appropriate or normal, they might have some sensory stuff. They might be under responsive. And so they need a lot of sound for their body to feel regulated. In other words, I need very little sound for my body to feel regulated, but that's not quote normal or balanced either, right? It's just what feels normal to my body. So if you have a kid who does not stop moving, making noise, touching things, that's an indicator that there's something going on for that particular body that is out of balance. And so my reach out to an OGM with an expert who understands sensory to see if that's part of what's going on. If it's not just a noisy kid, but it's a kid who is really craving it and needing a lot of noise. And teachers are a really great resource for this because they see all the kids. They know kind of what's typical and normal in child development, uh, you know, kind of appropriateness for different ages where you might be able to kind of adapt to your own kid. And you're just like, oh, this is just his personality. And then you um, can ask the teacher if she sees anything that is out of the ordinary that might be sensory related. I remember, but sometimes it's a surprise. I remember this one uh, girl who she was, I would say, very sensitive and, uh, you know, not needing a lot of noise and loudness. But she went to New York City. She has ADHD, Mm -hmm. went to New York City with ADHD and highly sensitive. And she said it was the first time she felt relaxed. Mm. There was something about the din, the Mm -hmm. chaos and noise in the background that helped her nervous system calm down, which I would have thought the opposite. And so you just sometimes don't know what works for you until you figure it out and play around and, but you just want to pay attention to those things. Yes. I'm actually from New York. And so I totally get it. Um, and it's funny because when I was in college and even to this day, when I had to focus and write, I would always go to a coffee shop. I focus much better when there's a lot of activity going on around me. It helps me to tune in. And, um, and I do want to say that, and this might be a whole separate conversation, but There are a lot of people who are highly sensitive and have sensory differences who get an ADHD diagnosis because a lot of the behaviors can look the same. Highly sensitive people notice subtleties so we can look easily distracted. We are deep processors so we can hyper-focus. And if you've got sensory processing differences, you can become easily overwhelmed. You can become really overstimulated. Um, you can be very distracted. You can have a sensory meltdown. I mean, all of these things can happen that can look like ADHD when it may or may not be. So I just want to put that out there. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely good to remember. And that this is a, a real thing, a whole thing. And I, I kind of wanted to talk about that. You said a sensory meltdown. Yes. What, what would you say are ways that a parent might know a sensory meltdown from a temper tantrum where it's like, um, you know, anger or manipulation or something like that? Great question. So I think you already kind of nailed the two types of um, tantrums, right? We have stress tantrums, which I always say are like releasing a steam valve. And those are legitimate and sensitive kids have them. And And then moms too. And and moms too. (laughs) Let's just say sensitive people, right? Because we're all people have meltdowns or or release steam. Absolutely. And there are manipulative tantrums where somebody's trying to make something happen or get their way. But a sensory meltdown happens when a sensory input is so overwhelming that it cannot be tolerated. And it will usually last for about 20 or 30 minutes. And it it is because the nervous system is so jarred and so frayed that it's just going to take the time to be able to come back online. It is non-manipulative. It is, um, you can't snap a child out of it, you know, with a manipulative tantrum or a stress tantrum can usually help a child move through it fairly quickly, or they may learn how to navigate them on their own with time and and healthy modeling. But a sensory meltdown is the sort of thing that's going to run its course. I always say it's sort of like, um, 
if you had a boulder at the top of a hill and it got going and it gained momentum, it's going to go until it peters out. There is no getting in front of it and stopping it. It's just going to run you over too. So if you have a child who um, you take them into a public restroom and the sound of the toilets flushing and the hand dryers makes them lay down on the floor and cover their ears and start flailing, that is a legitimate sensory meltdown. That's not a sensitive child who's being manipulative because they don't want to use the potty, right? Or you have a child who it's their turn to get up and kick the ball in soccer and they kick it and they they feel something in their shoe and they can't get up there and kick it. The sock is in the wrong place and now they're they're falling apart. It's it's legitimate, right? So um, there, there are kids who, certain sensory kids, you take them to New York City, they will have a sensory meltdown on a street corner because it is noisy and bright and loud and fast and overwhelming and the smell, all of it. And so um, it's really about the intensity of the behavior and the duration that it's going to last and whether or not the child is able to control it. And if it's your child, you know, if they're um, having a legitimate experience or if it's really. And you could just look at what the activity was prior to the meltdown. Like, what were you doing? And could it be an overstimulation situation? And uh, they just need to purge and, and watch for patterns. I mean, that's what we wrote. It was like, every time we drive home from a basketball game, my son screams for an hour, you know, this is as an infant. And so we're like, Oh, okay. No more basketball games. Yeah. So, uh, you just, if you notice that like every time you go to, uh, but you know, travel, if, if there, you go to a birthday party movies, Oh my gosh. So many parents, they take their young kids to these children's movies and they're just melting down for an hour afterwards. It's like, yeah, it's a lot. It's a lot. It's bright and it's loud and it's overwhelming. And there's a lot of other people around and they're feeling the energy of the other people that are with them. And, and so it can, it can be too much, too much of a good thing for a sensitive or a sensory child is too much. Yeah. For yeah. sure. And that's your sign. Right? Every time you take in a movie, they have a meltdown afterwards. It's not because they didn't get the popcorn or whatever. They just need to purge all that stimulation. So let's talk about that. Let's talk about people, sensitivity to people, because you didn't, you just kind of briefly mentioned that one in the movie theater. But sometimes when it's like a new person's energy, it can feel sort of, um, for a lot of people, they can feel that uh, overstimulation. Like it's a lot of, it's a lot of input. Yeah. To take in when you're meeting somebody new. Can you talk more about that? Or even somebody that you know. When I was a child and my maternal grandmother would come over, I would hide in my room for about half an hour or an hour before I'd come out and see her because her energy was so overwhelming to me. It was like easing my way into a scalding tub. I had to really warm up to it before I could get close to her. And at the time, again, nobody knew why that was going on. In hindsight, it's very clear to me. She was highly sensitive and very wounded and really intense and big, big energy. And it was just too much for me when she came over. Um, And I was actually sharing that with a a client that I'm working with not that long ago. And they said their daughter, who's four, does the same with her grandma. And so I don't think it's uncommon for sensitive kids to have a slow to warm reaction with somebody that they know. And it's usually because that person just has big, intense energy for the the child. And especially when they don't yet have the language to say, grandma feels intense. And, and it's going to take me a little while The the, you know, I, I was really young. I mean, it, it lasted for many, many years because she didn't change her intensity, but, um, there's another family that I'm thinking of where they have an uncle where the child is really sort of warm. These kids are two, three, four, really young where language isn't, isn't yet developed enough for mindfulness, but there are older children. I was working with a mom. Um, her son was about nine at the time, and he was very emotionally sensitive, energetically sensitive. I would say pure sensitivity. He didn't have any sensory stuff going on. And he just felt really deeply in really big ways. And mom and I were working on a couple of different things. And one of them was really about helping him hone his intuition and his inner knowing. And mom had taken him to a particular restaurant. He wanted to go to this pizza place and they ordered their food and they sat down. And while they were sitting and eating, he said to his mom, I don't like the way that man over there is looking at me. And she said, 
let's get our food to go and we'll take it home. Now, most parents would say to that child, what do you mean? He's fine. Leave him alone. Ignore him. You wanted to, you wanted to come here and now you want to go. <laughs> but because we had been really working on mom allowing him to feel his inner knowing, she said to him, okay, if it doesn't feel good for you to stay here, let's take the food to go. I don't want you to be uncomfortable with somebody. And we have no idea who this man was. We have no idea if there was something nefarious, if he was just looking at the kid in a way the kid didn't like it, whatever it was, but we can be very sensitive to other people's energy. I want to share one more um, for, for parents that are listening. Very often when we have little children, especially when they're really cute and we take them out in places, people will walk up and meet your child or get in their face and say hello. Or while you're standing in line in Target, they're waving at your kid and your kid does not like it. You can turn to that person and say, hi, we're in our own little bubble here. Or some comment to them where you're basically saying to this person, my child isn't interested in engaging with you. You know, because if you have a child who's not reacting well to strangers or to certain strangers, it is your right to protect their energy space, to protect their sphere and to keep them feeling safe with you. You're showing them that they're safe with you out in the world, even if there are people that are around them that they don't feel safe with. We really want to help develop that intuitive knowing in these sensitive kids, because that's, what's going to help them make good decisions later on in their life, knowing who to trust, who they want to be close to, who they want to get away from. Do they want to get in the car with those teenagers? Do they want to um, walk down that street or this street? That's what we really want to develop in them. Yeah. It's one of the things I teach in my uh, time for the top class. I have the sex education class for parents and kids to take together. And we talk about like honoring instincts and what are instincts, you know, how do they, what do they look like? How can parents like help encourage? And it is, it's the number one way that kids stay safe. And when they learn how to like trust themselves and that it's helpful for parents to have some tools on like, how do I, help my kids support their instincts and trust and listen. And sometimes we just don't really know what that looks like because it's sort of invisible. And so giving some tools and these are really good examples of like, you know, yeah, he does seem funny, doesn't he? Or like, oh, I can see why you, you, you know, sensing something weird about that person. And, and yet you don't have to know why there doesn't need to be an explanation. You just know your kids listening to their gut and you Get, it's okay to honor that. I used to get kind of tickled. My daughter was, uh, she just like you're talking about being out in the store, people being, oh, you're so cute. And she would just scowl. Yeah. She would not give him anything. She was really good at protecting her space, you know? And she just sent out such vibes like, back off. I am not interested in playing your game that I would just, my little inner people pleaser was like, oh, oh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't have to do it. She did it for me. Yeah. But yeah. Uh, yeah, kids are usually pretty good at that when they're little, but then they get socialized into being polite and ignoring those things. Exactly. So, they get talked out of it. And it's important for sensitive children to learn how to say in a kind way, this doesn't feel good to me. Or even if they have a friend over when they're seven, nine, I'm working now with a family who's got a a 14 year old who becomes easily overstimulated. I said to her, even if you have a friend who's over at the house and you need a break, you can say to her, so much fun having you here. And I'm just going to go in the other room for five minutes because I'm feeling a little overstimulated. And I really want to continue enjoying my time with you here. We are allowed to take care of ourselves. We don't owe apologies to the world for being hardwired, more sensitive than others. What we have to do is be responsible to ourselves, take care of our nervous systems. And you really nailed it, Tori. For me, the number one thing that sensitive people need to learn is mindfulness, how to be really present to to what we're experiencing, how we're feeling, how regulated or dysregulated we're feeling in any given moment, and then doing something about it. Most of us have been taught, adults I'm talking about now, most adults have been taught from a young age to ignore the subtle signs of dysregulation until we're so dysregulated that we become reactive and then we have to apologize for being reactive and inappropriate. And that is the old way of being a highly sensitive person. The empowered, the new way of being highly sensitive is to be tuned into how we're feeling, to do proactive work to be regulated, to stay in tune with how regulated we are, to step away when we need a break, 
and take care of ourselves so that we don't reach those points of overstimulation where we're yelling at our kids 75% of the time and feeling like a bad parent because we're dysregulated. It's the same reason that we get upset with these kids. It's just about our nervous systems. It's not about good or bad, appropriate, inappropriate, lovable, unlovable, worthy, unworthy. It's about regulation. And the more mindful we can be to how regulated we are in every given moment, the more easily we can take care of ourselves and show up for ourselves, for our families, for the world at large in the way that we really want to. Awesome. That was so good. Thank you so much, Melissa. I love it. I would talk about it for a long time. (laughs) Um, But why don't you tell people how they can learn more, find out more, talk about your book? Yeah. So I have a couple of books that are available on Amazon. You can also order them through my website, which is leadingedgeparenting.com. And I also do group coaching through my membership, which is sensitiveparenting.com. I do a weekly live Zoom and have all sorts of resources and special guests that come in and and do talks and things like that there. So I'm all over the internet, but everything is on uh, leadingedgeparenting.com. I'm going to put that in the show notes too, so that anyone can find out more. And I just want to thank you so much for being here. I think it was such an important topic. I think so too. I'm so grateful that you're helping parents learn about this stuff because they deserve it. These children deserve it. So thank you, Tori. Absolutely. Thank you. Want a free life coaching session? Go to lifecoachingforparents.com and schedule yours today. And thank you so much for listening. I would love it if you would subscribe and share these podcasts with your friends. If you have a question you'd like me to answer on the air, go to lifecoachingforparents.com slash record my question and you can send me a voicemail recording or write me an email and I'll answer it on the air. Thanks again. Have a great day.